So hello, this is our first ever bonus episode. Thought this conversation was a good conversation, and so I wanted to put this on the podcast as well. Nate Monroe from the Florida Times Union and I did a uh, kind of a conversation with the downtown Jacksonville Council about media and news and local media, but um, we also talk about some some Duval issues as well. And so this is my first ever bonus episode. So we're not going to do an expanded intro, but enjoy. When we come back, you'll hear somebody from the chamber kind of introducing Nate and I, and then we go right into the discussion. We're really excited today to have Nate and Ovi with us. So with that, I'm going to give a really quick, short intro so that we can get into these discussions. For those of you that don't know Ovi Umanah, he is a local attorney and entrepreneur. He is the founder and managing partner of Umanah Legal Group. His law practice focuses on small businesses, personal injury, and estate planning. He also consults with politicians and works with groups to organize and motivate communities which of uh, color to vote, which of course we care a lot about as we, for any of you who are joining us recently, that's a big topic for us. He has worked with local politicians such as city councilman Garrett Dennis, school board member Warren Jones, and state representative Tracy Davis. He was one of the lead consultants on a campaign to defeat the attempt at privatizing JEA, which is a big, big win for him. Um, He's a Jacksonville native, of course, and his alma mater is the University of North Florida. He currently sits on the board of Big Brothers and Big Sisters in Northeast Florida, He and his wife, Jane, organized the Duval version of the Black Panther Challenge, where they raised funds to take over 350 underprivileged kids to see the movie Black Panther, which I don't know if any of y'all remember that at the time, but it was it was so moving. And Obi, I'm going to just for two seconds fangirl and tell you that that was probably one of the coolest things that I've ever heard of anyone doing in the city. And for those of you that don't know, he has a podcast called Why You Should Care. (laughs) So and he's actually had Nate come on that podcast and the two of them together, I think, are wonderful to open and positive discussions. Um, And so we're looking forward to that kind of vibe today. For those of you that don't know Nate Monroe, I'm not sure what rock you're living under, but I'm really happy you're gonna meet him with us today. He is a reporter and columnist for the Florida Times Union, has been since 2013. He's covered City Hall, JEA, local politics in general for the paper's Metro News Desk. And then in 2019, he became a Metro columnist. He uh, worked for newspapers in the Florida Panhandle and in South Louisiana prior to coming to Jacksonville and graduated from Louisiana State University in 2010 while growing up. um, Where he grew up, though, was in a suburb, uh, Seidel, outside outside of New Orleans. He and a team of Times Union reporters were the first to uncover the sham charity with ties to former U.S. Rep. Representative Corrine Brown, which was ultimately the centerpiece of a federal indictment and later her conviction on fraud and tax crimes. And he and his colleagues also produced a groundbreaking investigation into the flood risks associated with deep dredging of the St. John's River. So nice, as we know, both Nate and Obi try to focus on all topics in Jacksonville, and we are looking forward to their discussion today. Like I said, we're going to be recording. One, two, if you have questions, please throw them in the chat, and we'll get to that as soon as we can. Without further ado, though, Obi and Nate, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, guys. Uh, This is really great. Good morning. I am. Uh, this is my second time in in the in the downtown council. I feel like at this point I need to join. You guys are doing a lot of good stuff to get information out. So I'm honored to to be able to come on again. And so 
I think what the plan is for this initial part is for Nate and I to kind of have a conversation similar to how we have on the podcast. I'll start off with a question, ask it to Nate, and then we'll kind of both discuss it. And then we'll go through a few questions. And I picked some questions I feel like you guys would want to hear, at least in general, and then we'll leave it open to really get to your questions as well. I think that's as, as important. So, so my first question to you, Nate, is we read your articles, uh, we read your columns. Why do you hate Jacksonville so much? <laughs> why, why, why do you hate us? Oh, that really, that is like <laughs> such a, that's, that's the gotcha question of the moment. You know, I, I take a uh, sadistic pleasure in making Daniel Davis's job uh, <laughs> as hard as possible. And so when I wake up every morning, that is the first thing when I look in the mirror that I ask myself is what can I do today to make Daniel Davis's job more difficult? Um, <laughs> No, you know, it's it's funny. I, I feel like I qualify now as sort of having skin in the game. This is my eighth year uh, at the newspaper and in Jacksonville. And, uh, you know, my fiance actually relocated here from Tampa last year, actually right as the pandemic was starting. So it was almost uh, exactly a year ago. And, you know, we're getting married here later this year. And I think we are beginning to do the thing that adults call like settling down. So, you know, I, you know, the funny thing is that this obviously doesn't always come through in the columns, uh, most likely, but I really do like Jacksonville. And like a lot of people before me, I see the potential in the place. And uh, it's, you know, it can be frustrating to watch us sort of come up short. So anyway, that's just a little context. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's great. And I think I think people need to hear that. I'll tell you, one of the things that, you know, I'm really happy to speak in front of this group is because, you know, one of the things we we have to do, I've born and raised here. I've grown up here. This is my city. I love this city more than any other place in the world. And one of these, one of the things that we have to do in this city and that we don't do well is take criticism, right? You know, I think when we, when we talk about where we want to go as a city, we can't get there always by roses and, and rainbows. We have to kind of look at the grit and look at some of the things that uh, that make us make us not the city that we want to be. There's a lot of people that work in business on this line. I have several businesses myself. And you know in your business, you can't improve it by just pretend just focusing on the positives. You have to focus on sometimes the things that that don't that we don't like. And so you know I get harassed sometimes for me being critical of this city as well. And I do that because, you know, I, I love this city. Like I, I there is no place in the world that I would want to live. I've moved back here from South Florida to live here because I love what the city offers, not just for resources, but for people. The people in Jacksonville are like the best people in the world. I mean, we are Jaguar fans. Like, how can you not be optimistic about life if you're if you're a Jaguar fan? And so there is some of that, you know, that criticism that we get sometimes for saying something bad about the city, but that doesn't mean we don't love the city. That just means we want to, we'll see it better. So next question for you, Nate, is what do you think people commonly get wrong about the media? We're in a very highly polarized time with media. And I think you're speaking from the media side. What do you think people get wrong? Man, I mean, honestly, this could be the topic uh, of sort of its own group discussion. You know, I, I would say the first thing, and, and this does get talked about often, or I hear this point made often, but it's it's still a, it's a significant one. 
is that when we we talk about the term the media, I mean, it's become this clearinghouse for just you know general complaints about a broad swath of of different types of media, you know, cable television, local television, national papers, local papers. I mean, context is really important when when we're talking about the media. And so I'll kind of break my own rule, I'm sure, and refer to the media as, you know, use that catch-all term a lot, but just with the understanding that, that you know, this encompasses a lot. Um, and, you know, the world that cable television anchors live in is completely different than the world that Times Union and Daily Record and Jacksonville Business Journal reporters live in. Like, we do totally different things. And uh, it almost feels like we're in different fields in a lot of respects. I guess the other thing I, I would say, and this is more just something uh, I would ask people to consider, the media is also something that people tend to have uh, very strong opinions about. But those opinions are also often very um, sort of self-contradictory. So when you're in journalism, you find yourself cornered by certain family members sometimes who like to lecture you about their view of the media. And I hear this sometimes that you know, the, the virtues of the give it to us straight, just the facts, that's all we want. Those family members are also often the family members who watch Fox News all the time, right? And whatever you think about Fox News, it is that is certainly not just the facts, kind of straight news. And so we are entering a world where viewer, audience, reader preferences are going to matter. Um, newspapers are relying less on advertising money and more on sort of subscription-based business models. Television through like streaming services is also going to rely more on viewer preferences. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty within the industry about, you know, what that means uh, and the implications for what it is that we do. And a lot of that is probably a bit above my pay grade, but um, that is just something to consider that, you know, what, what people say they want and what they actually gravitate toward are, are very often different. Yeah, I, I'm not part of the local media, but I work with I work with reporters. With my job, I, I you know, I have reporters on my podcast pretty much on every episode. And the thing I, I, I would just I would just say is is that these guys are like real people, and and I think sometimes that gets lost in some of the, especially the local people. I mean, these are, these are real people that are doing their best. Uh, and there's this, oh, for some reason, there's this, you know, motivation that these, all of these guys are, have an agenda. And I, and, and that's just not the case if you actually know these people and work with these people. And so I see that a lot as well as feedback is there's this magical agenda that these guys are pushing out. And a lot of times that's just not the case. They're just covering the story the best they can. I would also say, uh, not to dwell on this question too long, but I mean, I think this, I mean, there's some important stuff here. One thing that that I try to do uh, in my column is try to make sure that I'm giving a broad view to something. So I wrote about Jacksonville area legal aid recently. And, you know, I think it would be easy to say that the value that JALA has is, you know, to say, well, they keep people, uh, you know, they protect people from being kicked out of their homes and to kind of end the discussion there. But when you really look at what they do and you look at their casework and you look at academic studies, what you find is that groups like legal aid, you know, keeping someone in their house, preventing them from being kicked out. I mean, there are links between foreclosures and uh, violent crime in neighborhoods. 
holding landlords accountable to clean up mold and roach infestations improve health outcomes. I mean, there are there's sort of an interconnectedness to things, to everything we talk about in the city. And you know, the media plays a similar role. Like I think it's easy, and you know, I can fall into this trap myself, by the way, of viewing the media's role in a kind of narrow way, which is to say, um, you know, oh, if this incentive deal goes down, you know, what was the sort of cause and effect with like media coverage of that? I think the longer view and the broader view is to say, look, you know, Citigroup put out a study in September that said uh, that tried to quantify the cost of racial discrimination. And it found that since the year 2000, uh, racial inequality in lending and credit and housing policies and access to uh, college education has cost our GDP like $16 trillion just since the year 2000. And so I look at that and I say, you know, the newspaper throughout most of its history has been very supportive of what we would call like the sort of business establishment, the, the editorial voice of the paper. And often the, the journalism has been sort of supportive of our elected leaders' efforts and those of the kind of business establishment. What the paper also was during that time was extremely uh, antagonistic towards civil rights, toward integration. And so I look at those things and I say, you know, that's where I see a connection between journalism's failure and uh, business climate. You know, the, the newspaper's failure to push to remedy inequality in the city, to fight against redlining, to fight against housing policies that destroyed uh, vibrant, dense neighborhoods in and around downtown. There was an economic cost to that. And so that's why I often find in my columns uh, that there is a need to lift and consider perspectives on equality, um, on how we're spending our money, um, because, you know, there's not always it's not always just a cost in the moment. I mean, there are some long term, you know, there are long term effects here. And anyway, that's a really rambling answer. But, you know, I, I think nothing is ever as simple as we think it is when we first confront it. So, and that's a good segue into kind of our next question. What do you think the media is doing wrong? What do you think the media kind of gets wrong here? I, you know, I think I think it's fair, you know, it's clear that, you know, there's been some media bashing, but I think it's also responsible in this forum with this group of people to talk about some of the things that I think the media is, is not doing as, as well. You know, again, like when we started, you know, I tried to say that I think context matters when we're talking about the media. So what I think the media does wrong, like on a national level is a little bit different than what I think I can talk about, you know, specific to newspapers and, um, you know, sort of local media. You know, look, we we rely, we still rely too much on kind of like usual suspect sources. Um, I think we still struggle to cover uh, our community in a representative way. We are sometimes, I think, a little bit too reactive uh, to news in the moment. You know, I think this is not some of this is a product of staff cuts and and the kind of larger industry forces, which we can also talk about. But, you know, we have less staff than we've ever had. We're lucky in this town because we have two you know, the Daily Record and the in the Business Journal cover local business very well, which is good because we really don't cover business. And so, I mean, there are real gaps in what we're able to get to. There's a total blind spot in the 
uh, criminal justice system. We just really don't have an eye on that at all. So, I, I mean, I could probably talk all day about almost all these questions, but I'll. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll hop in here too. I think, you know, yeah. one of the things that, and I don't know if, if people are seeing this, but like one of the things I, there's two kind of bigger, two, one small issue, one big issue. The small issue for me is I think there's, people rely too much on headlines now. And so there's a kind of a, a lack of responsibility to what headlines are saying because they want the clicks or they want that, but really people aren't even reading past the headlines. So a lot of those stories are really just headlines. And so, and I, what I'm seeing is the, the headlines are being more salacious, but when you open the article that that's not there. And so I think there's a little bit of responsibility there, but the biggest issue I think not just here locally, but nationally is the lack of diversity that we have in covering the news. We tell stories from the gaze of our of our experience in our life. And a lot of people have not experienced the things that, you know, an African-American or another minority or a marginalized person has felt, but they're telling those stories. And sometimes those things get lost. There's context that's lost. There's a lot of that's lost in that. And there's just an overall lack of diversity. And I've spoken about it here locally. And I know the Florida Times Union, they don't hire, the, the reporters have spoken on it and every, you know, and we, we do need to work on at least locally, well, all over, but having a, a, a more diverse group of people telling the stories because there's stories that are not even being told, not even the stories that are being told. There's stories that are just not being told because our media does not look like our country or our city. And so when I see that, that's the thing that, I, you know, I why I'm here in this business group is because I know that when you guys speak about these things, people listen. And so that's why whenever I get invited here, I want to come because I know if the business community in this town speaks up and says, hey, I want a more diverse newspaper or I want these stories to be covered, it's going to be covered. So speaking of which, We'll segue to another question, Nate. You spoke about, you know, cuts and, and, and things of the new staff. You know, what is a story that you wish you had time to vote more energy to? What's the story that you wish you could you had the time to tell that you haven't been able to really tell so far? I would say, I think I said, I feel like we have a, a blind spot with our local criminal justice system. And I've been sort of, playing with a few ideas. I don't know if anything ever comes of them, but I've been like sort of following a couple cases. I think consolidation is always, <laughs> I think the term puts people to sleep, but I've never kind of done the the deep dive on consolidation that I've wanted to do just about the outcomes, uh, sort of examining where the money has been spent. You know, I think that's a really worthy thing. And, and you know, I think in, on so many issues, consolidation is kind of the the undercurrent to a lot of stories that we talk about and that are in the news. And as I said earlier, I like the the sort of interconnectedness of things. I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a real big puzzle piece for us. Figuring out how to make this giant government work is, you know, I think in some ways a story of the city. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what I would love there to be more coverage of is the Kids Hope Alliance and what is is and is not transpiring there you know obviously if you're if you follow that story and, and what was going with Kindle alliance there's a lot that happened behind the scenes and then there's also the story of is this program really working 
the way it's supposed to be. And so, you know, that's a story that just hasn't really been able to be told because there's been so many other scandals that have kind of moved to the forefront. But, you know, when we talk about this community and what we're going to do and how we're going to improve it, Kids Hope Alliance is a huge part of that, formerly Children's Commission. And so that story just has not been told yet. It's a it's tough because, you know, with a story like that, it's you're combining both political intrigue with issues about crime and public safety and social outcomes. And those are things that are immensely difficult to write about. They take, you know, I mentioned really briefly earlier, I think one of our weaknesses is that we're too reactive. And I think part of that is a product of just not having a huge staff you know, with a bigger staff and more time to kind of look into things like figuring out if a program is having a tangible effect on crime is like a big lift. I mean, it, that is a hard case to make and, you know, takes like some rigorous data analysis. You've got to kind of dive into specific cases and uh, get on the ground. I mean, that's that's like a year, multi-year type project. And so that's what it like. Those are the things that I think we we missed and that we're you know, less and less able to do with fewer staff members, you know, and I, and I don't mean to attribute all of our weaknesses to just staffing issues, but I mean, that, that really is a big, big one for us. All right. So last question before we go into the open, to open it up for audience questions as well is if you had a magic wand and you were the mayor tomorrow or today, this afternoon, what is one thing you would do right? What's one thing that you would enact? Oh man. I mean, the reason I'll, I'll never be in elected office, like, man, I I would, I, I I mean, give me all the tax increases. Like I think the city is just so systemically underfunded. And I think we are really badly starved for revenue. You know, local government has really only a few ways to help people. And Unfortunately, they involve spending money and we just don't have a lot of money to spend. This is like a half century of of starving the beast strategy. And and I just think we're kind of at a breaking point in some ways. So, you know, I would want to do a little bit more kind of analysis, but, you know, there has to be some kind of revenue play. I mean, that that would be my my first inclination. And you're not you're not going to be my client anytime. (laughs) Yeah, but. But no, I mean, I, I, what, what would you do? What would you do? Yeah, this I thought about this a lot, and it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't be a tax, but I would make sure there's a dedicated funding source for children's services. So, meaning that you know there's a there is a a portion of our budget that is assigned to children's services that is there every year, that is there early, that comes from uh, other cities do this as well. But we make sure that we have enough funding for our children's services. And when I talk about children's services, I'm not just talking about children's commission. Right now, the juvenile part of the local justice is here as well. Our juvenile services are in that as well. And so a lot of cities do a half cent or some a portion of a, of a cent that comes out of travel or budget that is just dedicated to children's services. And so that's what I would do. I think we have to invest in our in our kids and the only way you do that is with a dedicated funding source and so that's what I would do right the first thing I would do and then I think I would also and I'll make I'll make this point because I know the questions will be about downtown is 
I think I would probably be a little bit more inclusive in kind of the boards and committees that they're using to to decide on downtown. For example, the mayor just has a group together that's going to talk on downtown. And it's actually really good group of, of people. But there's some things missing. There's no there's no restaurant owners that work downtown that have businesses downtown. There's no young people. If you want to attract young people, you might want to put young people on that board to ask them. It's, it's, and so those are the things that I would do right away is make sure that I'm getting advice from a bigger circle of people, but also people that are more impacted on a day to day. So we'll now, now you guys know, now I'm on tape. So you know exactly what I would do. And so <laughs> we'll now open it up for questions that have been in the chat or, or however you want to do that. Yeah, give me just a second. So we, um, as if you have questions, like we said, please put them in the chat. We have quite a few. And I'm just going to basically, you guys um, kind of read them verbatim and, and they're from as we, to your point, I'd be like, this is like, we're now all on tape, right? And I think that this conversation is is important um, in understanding some of the fabric of journalism and topics and those sorts of things in Jacksonville systemically and as like in a holistic approach, right? So as we kind of talk through some of these things, also having a recording, it's really nice, right? Like it doesn't disappear now, ever. <laughs> so here we go. The um, first question that we have, uh, Ben Alcorn would like to ask, it seems many years ago that cable news started to blur the lines between opinion-based and traditional reporting. It also appears that many newspapers and publications have followed suit in blurring the lines between columnists and reporters. Obviously, you're a columnist and paid to give your opinion, but can you talk to this phenomenon and what you think about the differences? Sure. I mean, this gets back earlier to, you know, something about people, what what people say they want uh, in the news and what they actually tend to gravitate toward. These are, I mean, some of these topics, some of these topics are very complicated and, and I've got my own sort of conflicting views on them. I mean, there is a media literacy problem in this country. The media certainly has uh, its share of blame for that, but there is some level where I, I don't know how to help people. Like when I became a columnist, I would get emails from people uh, in those first few weeks asking, like, when did I show up in Jacksonville? And it's like, well, I'd, I'd been a reporter for the past six years. <laughs> I mean, I'd actually been here uh, for a long time. And it's sort of only with this opinion piece, maybe that was like the first thing they had read from the TU in a long time. Like, you know, people should not only be getting their news from me. Like that is that is not how you need to be a, a consumer of local news. But I think some people do, and and I don't know how to fix that problem. I mean, that's a uh, you know, and, and on a national level, I mean, I do. I agree that um, really cable news, particularly, has blurred the lines. I mean, in the sense that I, I can't tell you, I couldn't watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News and tell you which of these shows is supposed to be kind of their nightly news broadcast and which of them is the kind of personality-led opinion show. I mean, they all kind of feel the same to me. And I think that's a problem. I will also plug newspapers here and say that there have been uh, some academic studies that show that in the years after newspapers disappear in cities, there is a measurable decline in civic engagement. There are, there are fewer people who tend to run for local office, and there is actually an increase in partisanship uh, because people are relying more on national news and on uh, social media for their, 
for their information and less on local news, uh, where I think even when we disagree pretty solidly on on issues like, you know, there's no Republican and Democrat side to like Lot J. I mean, if you try to fix that, if you try to fit that into some partisan box, like you'd be in kind of a weird place. So, you know, I, I think that is a real problem. Do you think, I mean, clearly it's detrimental, right? I'm, I'm assuming you think it's detrimental. I think that the sure. majority of us believe that it's detrimental, um, especially for those of us who have children who we're trying to raise to understand the difference between what they're seeing in their feeds versus what reality is and when they are writing papers and whatnot. I mean, I speak from experience, right? My son's 13 going into high school next year. And sometimes he says things and my husband and I are like, where did you find that? Like, where did you hear that? <laughs> And it's kind of one of those things. But so do you do you think that the, that the shift came from from social media, from advertising subscription? Like, how do we get the most clicks? Like, is it monetarily based? That's kind of moved, like, quote unquote, do you think there's a fault? Do you think it's just the natural progression of what has happened and we're kind of screwed and have to go back? <laughs> well, I'm a big believer in the the natural progression of us just getting screwed. I mean, <laughs> you no, I mean yeah, that's I mean, those are. Big questions. I I mean, look, the without a doubt, as I said, I think the media bears some responsibility. Uh, You know, I think that like national news outlets figured out that it is uh, very profitable to cater to a more niche audience instead of trying this more traditional 20th century approach, uh, the kind of Walter Cronkite model. Although, by the way, just Walter Cronkite, again, on what people say they want and and, uh, what they want. You know, the big thing that everyone remembers about him is when he declared that the Vietnam War was lost. That was actually an opinion he was expressing. It that was a very prescient and informed one. But uh, it's I find it interesting that that's usually held out as the model of, of you know, what we want in our TV news. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, the social media aspect is something that is particularly troubling and also something that, I, you know, I don't the media is not going to help us get out of this cycle of people being addicted to it and sharing disinformation and just like poisoning their brains. Like I don't, there is like a media literacy problem that is significant. And that I just like, I don't know how that's going to get, you know, rectified. Like I have no idea. I think that what Nate just said is, is the other kind of thing that I was saying, what I was saying earlier and why I come and speak to groups like this because it is up to you guys to kind of push back on a lot of that. It really is. I think, I think there's a, a, an opportunity to say, Hey, this is not, why are you sharing this? This is BS. Like this isn't factual. You know, there, we, we have lost the ability to, to argue about ideas anymore. And, and that's because there's so much of misinformation and literally just lies from a lot of different sides that are, are into every argument. And I think we need to push back. I think like, if you want a better media, if you want a better city, you have to engage and push back because otherwise people are, the people that are continuing to do what they're doing are just going to continue to do it without right. any pushback. And so that's kind of the other part of that is there is not only responsibility on the media, but responsibility on us to say, Hey, I don't want to share stories that look like this these headlines are bs like call these people out make them feel like that's not what we want well to that because i'm gonna there's a couple other people who are asking similar questions so i'm gonna try to like group these kind of per topic um sean stenson said it feels like there's too much 
or he asked, it feels like there's too much focus on being the first to break a news story and that there's really not a lot of research that goes into the situation, making the story full or making the sure the full real story is told. What are your thoughts on this race for clicks? Is getting the real story out for consumption, like taking the time to actually research before spewing information. Sure. Making sure you're telling the full story is always a concern and, and actually is very often a lot harder than it than it sounds. I think that is a real, I think what he is asking about is a real problem. I think it's, I would suggest more a problem on sort of a national level than it is on a local level. Like <laughs> there aren't a lot of stories that I feel like we're racing our peers to just like break and not you know, and, and sort of like gloss over a bunch of details. I mean, but I, certainly there is a problem, like Obi was saying earlier. I mean, local news is not immune from, you know, clickbaity kind of, you know, bullshit to pardon the uh, strong language early in the morning. But I mean, stuff and we're getting better about it. You know, newspapers used to have like mugshots on their website. And that was a really shameful practice that is being phased out, uh, not universally, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's more, I would suggest that's more an issue on a national level and not so much locally. And okay. again, I think we're pretty lucky here to have good news organizations and, and for the most part, pretty responsible and, and actually pretty cooperative. Like we work pretty well with our peers, I think. I would agree with that. We, you know, we at Downtown Council have over the last year suddenly made a lot of news <laughs> friends per se, um, because we do tend to bring um, topics and speakers. And so it's been real nice. Anytime anyone has a question, they just kind of, you know, reach out and they're like, hey, this is who you're going to talk about. Like, do you mind if we say this? Like, do you mind if we quote you? Which has been really nice. I mean, part of this for us is being able to, as Obi had said, like one of the reasons he wants to come is because we're trying to get as much truth in, like information out there for people to be able to bring in. So I'm happy to hear that you think from a local standpoint, at least everyone plays well in the sandbox, which is nice. Huh. Beth Tate had also kind of just to go with that was um, she said that the use is the use of social media for news consumption, which this is going to go into a whole other topic, right? Is the use of social media for news consumption, reducing the trust in local news as the headlines are often so clickbait and people just react to the headline, not reading the full article. And then that's going to go into another thing about social media and news in general. Do you think it's reducing the, the trust in local news because it seems too clickbaity because it's a post as opposed to a more... Yeah, I mean, um, I think you know. I think there's truth to that. I also think that social media, it sort of removes the news and the headline further from the the actual news source. And so the more you kind of divorce those two... I think it's easier to start misinterpreting what articles do or don't say. I mean, especially if you don't read them. I mean, again, like that's something where, I mean, if somebody sees an intriguing headline and they just like, don't read the story, <laughs> I don't know what, I mean, in some cases, like, I don't know what, what that newspaper was supposed to do about that. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, this, it, I mean, it kind of plays into what we've been talking about this whole time, you know, news has to, in a world with with a lot of distractions, in a world where people can seek their their own information and kind of go into their own, you know, I see somebody asked about echo chambers when you can sort of live. I was going to say that's my next question. Yeah, <laughs> that like is. news organizations, the 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 bar to kind of break through the noise becomes higher, and maybe that means you need better headlines, but also maybe that means the headlines sort of become you know more sensational. 
uh, and then maybe those power, you know, tweets that are, you know, like I say, get more and more divorced from the news source. I mean, there's just this kind of vortex that, you know, again, like it's it's just stuff that's that's really complicated. And unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have the answers uh, and I don't think really anyone does. So one of the things, too, I think is interesting about social media and news and and really just speaking from from a, a, another viewpoint is social media makes it a lot easier for news to spread. Like before you, you, you had to go and get a newspaper and read it, right? Like, you know, not everybody can afford a newspaper. Not everybody has, you know, the news on at six o'clock, right? There's a, there's an ability there and a, and a benefit, especially to marginalized people or people that are poor to be able to get news that they weren't able to get in the past. And I think, you know, I don't, I think there's a lot of negatives to what we're seeing. I don't want to leave without people kind of realizing how much it's been helpful to have more openness in the delivery of the news to people. For sure. And I'll say, you know, the odd thing for not just us, but I think pretty much every newspaper in the country, you know, we have fewer paying subscribers than we've ever had, but more people see our stuff than they've ever seen. Our reach is bigger. It's just not being monetized the same way um, or at all. So, I mean, it's sort of this like cruel irony in a way, but it's nice to know that, you know, more people read, but yeah, that comes with some downsides. Well, and that's a topic that we like, there's a group of us, it's like we talk about like, you know, I would love to know who actually pays for their news. Like we pay for like, I say we, my husband, like we pay for our articles. We pay for our news, regardless if I'm reading it on, you know, if it's coming in in an email blast, you know, morning, noon and night, but like we pay because we realize that we got to pay someone to do the job to find the news, right. And to, to relate the news. So I think it's, you know, that's a whole, probably whole other side tangent, (laughs) but you know, the idea that we all should be paying for our news, that we should be paying for the people whose job it is to report the news and to give it to us because that's not what we, you know, what we can go and do. Like, that's not, that's how we get our information. So that's a whole other side tangent. I do want to move to um, a question from um, Siobhan Steele. She said, what are your thoughts on the fairness, or I'm sorry, on the conversations happening to bring back the fairness doctrine? And let me tell everyone what the fairness doctrine is in case you don't know. It's a policy that requires the holders of a broadcast license to both present controversial issues of public importance and to do so in a manner that was honest, equitable, and balanced. So what is your what are your thoughts on bringing back the fairness doctrine, especially coming out of this election year nationally and then going into elections that we're going to be having locally? Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate the the reason why someone might think that would be a good idea. I think that is like a regulatory tool that's I mean, I think that's like taking a musket into, you know, like modern warfare, like <laughs> limiting what, I mean, even if this were possible and even if it survived like court scrutiny, and I'm not sure it would anymore, I feel like, you know, so you get television to, you know, have to sort of comply with this. I mean, as we've just been talking about, social media is this wild west disaster and that fairness doctrine is not going to have any effect on that. I mean, I I just I, I'm really skeptical about something like that. And and I'm not even sure that's a good I don't love the idea. And maybe this is just my, you know, my own sort of industry bias, but I don't love the idea of any particular regulation that says news outlets have to do X or Y, um, particularly content related 
So I'm just really skeptical of that. Okay. Well, then, since we're talking about uh, controversial issues of public uh, importance, let's talk about, um, so from Bill Hoff, a number of past and present local elected officials and staff have had unprofessional controversial exchanges on social media. What are your thoughts on our local leaders' use of social media? It's interesting. Uh, you know, it's job security, I guess. There's that. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things where, I mean, I, I, you know, I laugh because, you know, I hear complaints sometimes about people complaining that, you know, the newspaper or other local media, all they do is highlight the bad and, and gosh, what, you know, what we're doing to hurt people. But <laughs> I can't imagine it helps business recruitment to have our public officials, like literally actually on social media, like bickering with each other. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it's really strange. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like that before. Yeah, I'll, I'll hop um, in. I'll hop so, in. You want to add to that? Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, you I'll, I'll hop <laughs> no, I, I listen, social, social media is a powerful tool for politicians. And I think like it's important, right? I think it's a, a very easy way to get information out quickly and with times, especially like in, during COVID and with vaccine updates and hurricanes and stuff like that. I think it, it makes a lot of sense to be able to have that, that outlet. But I also think, you know, there is, there is a, you know, people also are using it to know what tone of politician you are and what, what, what you're for. And, and even more now in this world, which I don't always agree one is that they want people want to have a statement for everything that is, is happening through social media. And I think, you know, I just think people, if you, if you're a public official, you know, I think you just need to be wary that that is a, that is a, a tool, but it can also be a weapon. And I think you just have to be careful with, with what you do. It sounds more like it y'all are. And I think that this is also probably kind of the opinion of most is that, you know, you have a social responsibility when you are in office or in anything that you do, right? In any job, it's not just our elected officials. You have a social responsibility to, to do certain things or to not do certain things and what how you choose to do that. You know what I mean? Like that is kind of on you. I do think it's interesting though, that the use of social media has become, to your point, like it would be like, like during during the hurricane, like it was great. Like you could literally go onto the city of Jacksonville Twitter and you would see everything immediately before anything else. And that part was fabulous. Or, and then the mayor would retweet, right? And that was great because like you had it right then, right there in front of you. You didn't have to wait for a news alert any of those kinds of things. But to your point, some of the personal emotional stuff I think has been difficult for some of us to swallow and where that question comes from. Let's go on to, there's so many great questions, you guys. So this is from Jason Lafser. How do you see the future of local journalism playing out I love my local physical newspaper delivery, but understand the need to move to the digital platform. Do you see a day where the news will be delivered in purely digital form? I do. I don't know when exactly that is, but uh, without a doubt, it'll be a problem though, but not every, because not everyone has access to digital. I mean, you know, we talk about this. Yeah. I mean, it is a, it is a problem. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's a problem for a bunch of reasons. And one of them is that, with the Times Union and with, uh, you know, with maybe very few exceptions, like the print paper is still weirdly the more profitable end of the paper, like the website is not mm-hmm. yet. So, I mean, there's there's still this kind of weird uh, death trap <laughs> for newspapers. But, the, you know, the future of local journalism, I mean, I, shockingly, I, I'm probably a little bit more pessimistic than other 
you know, my, my peers who may know a little bit more about this, but, you know, there tends to be this assumption that uh, there's always going to be an appetite for local news and, and that it won't, it won't like meaningfully disappear. I mean, there are cities that don't have newspapers and I think don't actually have serious local journalism outlets. And, you know, I think our, our current culture and our moment are training people to, to be more sort of focused on national stuff. So, I mean, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about it. I do think there are some promising models. There is a a kind of a turn to a more nonprofit model. There are some promising groups that are trying it. It is not really something on a local level that has existed long enough to know how sustainable that's going to be. And, you know, look, nonprofit, a nonprofit model would require donors. And there is a dog bites man quality to journalism. And you know, in this town, I feel like things tend to very often be sort of transactional. And so I don't know if, I don't know how a donor funded kind of nonprofit would work in every city, but that is probably the most promising kind of alternative model going forward. And there are some examples of it, but like I said, I think five years from now, we'll know if that's something that'll work. Yeah, I, uh, Nancy had noted that the um, Tampa Bay Times is a nonprofit model, and so is the Daily Memphian. So I don't know. Obi, did you have any thoughts on on moving towards a nonprofit model or anything no, that we not, talked about? Not really. I, I, I'll I'll just use this time to just say go like purchase your news. Like yes. you know, I mean that's, <laughs> pay for that's, the news. <laughs> yeah, like pay for your news, whether it's nonprofit, for profit, you know, LLC, whatever type of news you want to get, go pay for it. If you can afford to get multiple subscriptions, get multiple subscriptions. You have to have, we have to invest in this. They call it the fourth estate. I agree. We need to invest in our media here. And the best way we can do that is by, is by paying you pay for your news. That's, that's the only thing I have to say about that. So that's my cheerlead too. (laughs) That's a big one for me. Okay, you guys. So we are always very mindful of time and it's 9.03. So what we're going to do now is we are, well, one, I'm going to thank the two of y'all. Yes, I see people clapping. I just, it's always wonderful to have, um, I don't even know. I don't have the words. I'm like losing my mind right now. Just thank you guys. Obi, Nate, thank you guys so much. Like I wish we could continue this conversation all day. Um, it's kind of one as we knew that we, we would want to talk forever and unfortunately we just can't. So we, we're going to move into breakouts. If you guys want to stay on and go into a breakout, that's awesome. If not, we respect your time and we understand completely to that. I look forward to having conversations with you guys um, in the future, especially as we kind of move forward with some things, you know, that we're trying to do as well and trying to help downtown. And we, we as a council and from the chamber side, really appreciate um, y'all coming and speaking with us today and um, next time yeah. I'm coming with the breakfast when you guys have the breakfast. Right? Obi, I told you yeah. I will give you breakfast. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, the chamber invites me and Nate the day that they don't, they're not offering, but we, we're not going <laughs> to. Just come my bread. I'll give you lunch. I'll give you lunch. I promise. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank oh, you guys. So yeah, much. I was just say thank you guys for having us. Uh, this was a lot of fun, and I'd, I'd be honored to come back and do it again at some point. Oh, you're so. coming back. Don't worry. You're coming back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to turn it over to Gracie. Gracie, you can take us out. Sure. Awesome. Thank you um, again, Obi and Nate, for joining us. What um, incredibly insightful conversation. I've learned so much. 